It's been a really uh, dark and rainy and stormy weekend, so I thought I'd start off by telling a funny story just to put you all in the clear. So I was interviewed um, a few weeks back uh, on live uh, media, and the interviewer said, um, how do you manage to write all these books and also appear on the new History Channel series, Damien Lewis, Spy Stories Investigated? And there is a new History Channel series coming up called something like that, but it isn't me. <laughs> it's the other Damien Lewis. And being an author and historian, I think you really need to keep a good sense of humour and, and be, be on the ball and use initiative. And so I managed to, to answer that question in a way that kind of kept the interview going, didn't really expose the interviewer. And if you want to know how I answered it, I will tell you at the end in the question and answer session. But for now, just to keep the theme going of the completely unexpected, and I hope this will be completely unexpected, there is a wildlife artist called Ben Waddams. He is, um, he's very good at painting kingfishers and elephants and rhinoceroses. And he works out of a studio in Shropshire. And for some reason, which I've never been able to <laughs> understand, he, when he paints his pictures, he listens to my, my books on audio, my war books, and they inspire him to paint wildlife pictures. Now, go figure. I don't understand how it works, but it does for him. And we're, we've become quite good friends. And he contacted me a while back and said, I really want to paint an image from one of your books of one of the iconic World War II missions you've written about. And so we researched various ideas and we came up with, with this painting here, if you can all see it. This is the painting that Ben did. It's, a, it's an original oil. And he sent it to me and I was very, very touched. It's a beautiful and, and very realistic depiction of that World War II mission. And what I'm going to do at the end of this talk is I'm going to show you, explain to you from where that came and how we used it in my forthcoming book. So that's, that's going to come right at the end. But for now, I need to take you back, those of you who can remember, to the winter of 1944. And Churchill had promised that the... Uh, the, the third front that the Allies were opening, so there was this D-Day front, the Western front, the Eastern front was the Russian, the, the, the Eastern front with the Russians. The Southern, the third front, was going to be the soft underbelly of Europe, which was Italy. Italy had not proven to be the soft underbelly of Europe at all. In fact, Hitler had vowed that Italy would not fall, and they had sent some of their best troops to defend uh, the, the various lines of defences that straddled the Italian mainland. And by the winter of 44, having been told that the, the war in uh, Italy would be over by Christmas, it was nothing, nothing like that at all. In fact, Allied forces had ground to a, a halt, a bloody and, and brutal halt on, on the defences of the Gothic Line. The Gothic Line straddled northern Italy in the Apennine Mountains, minefields, barbed wire, gun emplacements, tunnels, bunkers supposedly impregnable. And along the Gothic Line were hundreds of thousands of, of some of uh, Nazi Germany's best Alpine troops, Panzer divisions, and it was really, really proving an impossible uh, defensive line to break through. And so in the winter snows of, of autumn 44, our offensive had ground to a halt. And Allied commanders decided, realised that they needed something different, something spectacular to, 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 to enable a breakthrough come the spring when they would start a new defences when the snow started to melt. And the idea they set upon was to insert by parachute a number of agents from the Special Operations Executive 
and the SOE was, as you all know, Churchill's Ministry for Ungentlemanly Warfare. The organisation set up at the start of the war to wage war, no holds barred, and break all known rules of war. Deniable, secret, designed to wage a total war because Churchill believed Nazi Germany was waging a total war and we needed to respond in kind. So the SAE specialised in things like assassination, sabotage, terrorism, raising rebel armies, all the things that you really can't do uh, officially, and its agents were totally deniable, which meant that if they were captured, they would be denied by the British government. And the idea they came up with was, was to insert a number of, of SOE agents behind the Gothic line, so in the Germans' rear, to link up with the Italian partisans, so the Italian resistance, and to raise havoc in the enemy's rear, in the hope that that would destroy, disrupt their supply lines and, and convince the frontline troops that the Allies were breaking through and lead to that breakthrough that we all, we all so desired. One of those individuals, one of those uh, SOE agents, was a, was a man of incredible stature, heroism, cunning and, uh, and commitment to fighting the Nazi cause. A man that, you know, in the process of writing this book, having never met him, but having met his family, I have truly come to admire. His name was uh, Michael Lees. He was a captain. He was from a storied Dorset family who had uh, a long military tradition and, and, and highly decorated tradition. And... He'd served a couple of years in the war with a parachute regiment in North Africa, hadn't really seen the kind of action he'd signed up for. And then he heard about um, an organisation which had a headquarters in Cairo, which was manned by the Tweed Cat Boys. And the Tweed Cat Boys was the, one of the many colloquial names given to the SOE. And he met one of these chaps in a bar, managed to get him drunk, fed him, primed him with alcohol, found out that there seemed to be room for Allied agents deep inside occupied Europe, causing havoc and mayhem. I thought, that's exactly what I want to be doing. How do I get in? The problem was, when you're running a top-secret deniable organisation, it's very hard to recruit. You can hardly put an adver advertisement in the Telegraph or The Guardian because you're secret and it's not really the done thing. And so SOE recruited via the old boy network, the old school network and the handshake. And least didn't know anyone in Cairo who was part of the SOE set up there. So what he did was he found out the chap he'd got drunk was going on leave for two weeks, found out his name, found out what school he'd been from and other pertinent biographical details, forged a letter from him the next day, walked into the SOE Cairo office, said, I'm the chum of so-and-so, he's gone on holiday, we're old school chums, he told me to come here to be recruited and here's my, my, my letter of recommendation. And Lease blagged his way into the SOE and that's how he did it. And very quickly, SOE realised that they had a very special individual on their hands and they trained him up to insert into Yugoslavia and to link up with the Chetniks, who were the more right-wing side of the resistance forces in, in Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia was important because the Nazi Germany was using it as a transit point for all their supplies going through to Greece, where they were waging war against the Allies. Least parachuted into Yugoslavia, linked up with the Chetniks and very quickly proved to had, have a God-given gift to, to relate to and inspire and get on the level with local ethnic and guerrilla fighters. He just had this gift about doing it. And so he goes and runs a number of very successful sabotage operations, blowing up trains, ambushing uh, German convoys. And then he receives a message from SOE headquarters saying, and he doesn't know why this has come, you are to cease offensive operations with the Chetniks. Immediate, with immediate effect. 
So Michael Leese chooses to take that, 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 that order absolutely literally. And so he ceases offensive operations with the Chetniks. And instead, he goes out and carries out around about half a dozen solo sabotage operations. So on his own, he goes up and blows up about half a dozen German trains loaded with war material. And so when he's eventually pulled out of Yugoslavia, such is his renown that he's earned the nickname, rightly in my opinion, Mike Wildman Lease. And that's how people then knew him. And he was so sought after that by the autumn of 44, there was a turf war going on between SOE, who didn't want him to go, and the Secret Intelligence Service, who wanted Michael Lease for intelligence operations. And, and in the National Archive files that I had access to, there are all these wonderful letters where SIS is arguing to get Mike Lease, and the SOE is saying, well, you can have him, but only when we've, when we've used him to help win the war. Now, Michael Lease was one of those agents parachuted behind the Gothic line. He arrives in, 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 near the village of Seccio, which was the... Uh, the local partisan's base on the 4th of January in the snows. Snow's just started to fall. He thinks he's parachuting into an area where there are around about 500 well-armed, well-trained, capable partisans. He doesn't find that on the ground. What he finds on the ground, there are several hundred partisans, but most have no boots, few of them have weaponry, there's very little ammunition, there's very little food, and as for offensive operations, they have not carried out anything of any significance for many, many months. In fact, it's, it's, it's really a joke that this is a fighting force at all. The reason for this, which he doesn't know, in fact, very few people know, apart from those in positions of high places, is that there had been a sea change in Allied... Um, in Allied opinion, or at least the Allied approach to the partisans. To give you an indication of how effective the Italian partisans were in terms of fighting Nazi Germany and Italy, by this time, January 44, Field Marshal Kesselring, who was Hitler's chosen commander in Italy, and a very highly rec uh, 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 regarded commander by the Allies as well, had, had estimated that the Italian partisan operations had accounted for around about 20,000 German troops killed or wounded. So they'd been very, very effective. And the Allied commanders facing the Gothic line knew that without the partisans tying down tens of thousands of troops in the German rear, we would not have enough men and arms to make a breakthrough. In fact, the German defenders actually outnumbered the Allies. Not by a great deal, but they did. And they were in defensive positions, which meant you had an advantage anyway. So having these partisan operations was key. But, nominally speaking, on paper at least, around about... Three-quarters of the partisans were communist. Now, they were Italian communists, so they weren't necessarily particularly, uh, you know, die-hard about their, their beliefs, but they were, at least on paper, communists. And so the Foreign Office and elements of the, of the American uh, political establishment had made the decision that we should stop arming and funding the Italian partisans for that reason whereas the Allied commanders on the front line were fighting that order tooth and nail. Hence, Michael Lease turns up and finds partisans who are willing to fight but have pretty much nothing to do to fight with and certainly not an esprit de corps after months and months of, of no operations. He's been on the ground for two days and there's a very heavy snowfall and the Germans use it as, a, as, an, ex, as, as, as an ideal uh, excuse to send their troops in to wipe out the partisans once and for all, knowing they can't move very freely because of the snowfall. Michael Lease 
with the 500 partisans, is on the run for about a week and very, very narrowly survives. And he's seen the partisans running into the mountains, throwing away what little weaponry they do have, going back to being villagers. Now, to you or I, that might have seemed to be a disaster and pretty much the end of his operation, but Michael Lees, as I say, was an extraordinary man, and he sees this as a golden opportunity. And he goes to Colonel Monty, who is the nominal commander of the partisans, who's an, an Italian, former Italian army colonel, and he says, Colonel, I've got a proposition for you. I need to take control and command. That way I can shape your partisans into the fighting force that I need. And I can also get flights of weaponry and arms delivered to them so they can fight. But I need to be in command. I need to take my orders from Florence and deliver them to the partisans and, and, and get, this, get this, this band operational. And the colonel says, well, that's fine. But officially, if the orders can come from Florence to me and I can give them to you, at least that way I save face. It's a face-saving exercise. And Michael Lee is perfectly happy with that. And so that's the deal he cuts. And the first thing he does having cut that deal is he says to one of the most capable Italian partisan commanders, go and find for me two dozen of your best fighters. Uh, and from those, we will form our own elite band within the partisans. We will call them the Gufo Nera, which is the Italian for the Black Owls, and we will, we will embroider on their uniform chi, a badge saying Chi Osera Vincera uh, beneath the Black Owl logo. And Chi Osera Vincera in Italian is pretty much who dares wins. So Lees was basically forming his own local version of what he understood the SES were, were, were capable of doing. And having done that, in another mark of, of, of incredible genius, he's noticed that there are, amongst the partisans, who are, who are mostly male, obviously, there are some who are women, and they are young, beautiful Italian women. And he says, I want 20 of your most beautiful young Italian female partisans, and they are going to form my intelligence unit. And we will call them the staffettas, which is Italian for messengers. And he said their job is to get on their bicycles, cycle into the nearest German garrisons, flirt outrageously with the guards and gather as much intelligence as possible. Because what Michael Leese wanted, what he hungered for, he hungered to find that target, which if they could hit it hard, would enable the Gothic line to be broken and bring about an end of the war in Italy by vanquishing Nazi Germany and Italy once and for all. That's what he wanted to achieve. And so his staff has set out searching for that target. Now, occasionally in war, and I, I'm, I'm not, uh, I was never in the military, but I was a, a war reporter for 20 years, and occasionally what you need in, 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 in a war situation is a stroke of luck. Michael Lees was about to have his first major stroke of luck. A, a, a German army truck drives into the Seccio Valley, this area of mountainous terrain which the partisans control. And at its wheel is a blonde, blue-eyed German called Hans, dressed in German uniform. The partisans take him prisoner and bring him to Michael Lees. And they say, uh, this, this German wants to, to desert and join the partisans. And Michael Lees says, fine, why are you deserting? And, the German, and Hans says, because 
I am appalled and disgusted at the way my fellow German soldiers are behaving, because what the German military had, had, had resorted to doing under Hitler's orders and Kesseling, Kesselring's orders was whenever there was a partisan operation and German soldiers were killed, they would go into a village and kill everybody. Man, women, children, wipe them all out. So in some villages, 700, 800 had been wiped out, the village priest and everybody included. And Hans says I'm here because I'm, I'm disgusted at what's going on. And Michael Lee says, I don't believe a word of it. That's not why you're here. What's the real reason? And he keeps on and on and on at Hans until eventually he admits his real motive for being there. And he says, I was serving on the Eastern Front and I got a letter from my mother. And the letter from my mother said my wife was pregnant. Normally that would be cause for celebration. However, I had not been home for 18 months. So he said, I went to my commanding officer and I said, could I have compassionate leave, please, sir? And my commanding officer said, no, and not only that, you should celebrate the fact that your wife is breeding a young, uh, a young boy who will grow up to be a, a soldier of the Reich in Hitler's cause. And he said, that's why I hate my fellow Germans and that's why I've defected. And on hearing that, Lise said, OK, I believe you. Uh, and he, he allowed him to defect and become a member of the Partisans. And he said, tell me, uh, what do you know about the German defences in the area? And after a long discussion, Hans says there is rumoured to be a German headquarters, um, very high-level headquarters. In fact, Kesselring is supposed to go there every week because there's a direct phone link to, to Berlin where he can speak to Hitler and report on how the war is going, and several other top German generals are supposed to be based there. He didn't know where, it was, where the location of the headquarters was, but he knew its basic function. And Lise senses that target that he's looking for. And then second major stroke of luck that, 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 that you need in war and that Lise had at this moment. One of his staff vetters uh, unusually had grey eyes and, and they used to say of her, that the British soldiers used to say of her, she had, all, she had the look of all the world in her eyes. And she comes back from one of the intelligence gathering missions and she's got chapter and verse on this German headquarters, having been tasked to go out and do so by lease. And what she's done is she's gone into the local garrison and, you know, let's not beat around the bush, she had seduced the local commander, spent a night with him, and over the pillow he had revealed to her uh, everything about that German headquarters. And it turned out that it was based in, well, on the plain of the Po, so out of the mountains, not in partisan territory, obviously, about 72 hours' march away, and based in two supposedly impregnable fortresses. One was called the Villa Calvi, the white villa. One was called the Villa Rossi, the red villa, two uh, villa-like castles. And one part of it, the Villa Calvi, the white villa, was the command headquarters of the German 14th Army. Now, to put that in context, the German 14th, 14th Army at that time commanded 100,000 troops along the Gothic Line. So two-thirds of the Gothic Line defences were controlled by that headquarters. The Villa Rossi was the uh, accommodation block, which was where all the senior generals and officers would be based. So clearly, if you could take out the 14th Army headquarters and basically incapacitate two-thirds of the troops manning the Gothic line, that would be uh, the kind of knockout blow that everybody was looking for. Also, Lise reasoned. Lise was about six foot two, very, very um, broad-shouldered and, and physically capable individual. He wants to go on a recce mission to see it for himself. He's not typical Italian 
mountain farmer stature, as you can imagine. And the only thing they can find for him to wear is a, is a long peasant cloak. So with that on over his uniform, his Sten gun hidden beneath the cloak, he managed to walk all the way through the mountains into the plain and get to a place called the Casa del Lupo, the House of the Wolf, which was run by a local farmer friendly to the resistance. And from there, the last kind of high ground before the plains, you can look down on the two villa buildings. He gets eyes on them and he scopes out the target. Having done that, he comes back and he thinks, what do I have to uh, wage war on this, uh, fort this German army headquarters, which is defended by around about a 1,000 German troops, including everything up to anti-aircraft weaponry and heavy armour? I mean, this is a target that, that, that really requires a significant force to go in and, 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 and attack. And he has uh, in, his, uh, in his motley force several hundred Italian partisans who need uh, training, they need arming, but they also need to be injected with self-belief and the will to fight. He has, believe it or not, a hundred Russians. And the Russians are damn good fighters. Where have the Russians come from? They've been captured on the Eastern Front. They've been brought to Italy to work as slave labour building the Gothic line defences for the, for the German army. They've escaped and they've come in the mountains, into the mountains to fight. And they're commanded by Viktor Pirogov, who is a blonde-haired Russian and former lieutenant in the Rus Russian Red Army. He has some former Spanish Civil War veterans who somehow ended up in the mountains. He's got some former French foreign legionnaires. And he's even got a Dutch army sergeant called Fritz Snapper, who carries an alpenstock and came to the Italian mountains originally trying to leave Holland when, the Nazi, when Nazi Germany invaded and get to Britain. And somehow he ended up in the Italian mountains and not uh, getting to the UK. And so he's got this motley band of polyglot, multilingual force that he's got to try. And of course he has his German deserter. He's got to try and somehow meld that into a force to take out the German 14th Army headquarters. It's a hell of an ask. And so he thinks... I need a tip of the spear. I need a sharp tip of the spear. And I, most of all, I don't just need a capable strike force. I need a force that will inspire all my local troops that they can do this. And so he radios Florence headquarters and he says, look, I found the target. I found the golden target, but I need some commandos or some SAS, whatever you have, to be parachuted in to lead these men into battle. So the third major stroke of luck in this story for, for, for uh, Mike Leese is that there's a legendary SAS commander, I'm not sure you've all heard of, called Roy Farron, who by the end of the war would win the MC, the military cross, three times over. Um, an extraordinary man. He had been uh, obviously fighting all the way across France already, but um, he'd just been redeployed to Italy with number three squadron SAS. And number three squadron SAS were mostly new recruits fresh into the SAS and, 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 and raring to go and desperate to get into the action. Farron has just arrived in Florence with his men and he's in the Florence headquarters when Michael Lee's message comes through. And, of course, Farron immediately volunteers himself and his squadron of 40 troops. Mackintosh, the SOE commander in Florence, thinks to himself, this is a marriage made in hell. Michael Lee and Roy Farron both of whom not known for taking very much notice of orders, both of whom 
who will do anything to fight the enemy. He thinks, how on earth am I going to control these guys? The great thing was Roy Farron and the SS were not under the command of the British in Italy. For some reason, which I can't quite fathom, but this, this was the case, they were under the command of the Americans. So Farron goes to see the American commander of special operations in Florence and says, Sir, I want to deploy with my number three squadron to help Mike Lee take out this, the 14th Army headquarters, which will lead to our breakthrough. And the American commander says, absolutely, go get them. Go get them, son. And then, uh, he says, and then the American commander says, but there's one problem. You can't go. He says, you, Major Roy Farron, are not allowed to deploy. And you're not allowed to deploy because, one, you've been too badly injured during the war, which he had been, um, and he was supposed to not deploy on frontline operations. And the second reason was, by that time of the war, some of these guys had been fighting behind-line operations for three or four years back to back, and the attrition rate had been enormous, and we had lost so many senior commanders. He said, you need to stay because I need your experience here in Florence for operations. And so Roy Farron, being Roy Farron, says, would you mind if I just get on the DC-3 to see my men off? Because, of course, it would be terrible to let them go without seeing them off the aircraft. And the American, believing him to be an English gentleman, a man of his word, <laughs> says, of course you can go, uh, Major Farron, uh, but I'll see you back here in a few hours. So Roy Farron gets on the aircraft with his 40 men, and they fly... They're, they're, uh, it's a US uh, um, squadron of DC-3s. They fly in, and Major Farron is the first man to jump off the, the lead aircraft. Now, it's really fascinating. Why did Farron go? It, and he didn't go because he thought he was needed to lead his men. There were other capable commanders. And he didn't go because uh, he thought the mission would not succeed without him. He went for this reason, and it's fascinating. He went because he said to himself, if I don't go, but I send my men into that kind of danger, how will I look in their eyes? How will they see me thereafter? And he knows when he jumps, he's very likely facing a court-martial, obviously. So he says to the American dispatching crew, make no mistake, when I jump off this plane, you will report to Florence headquarters, I was dispatching my men and I fell. <laughs> so when, the, when the, the American air crew get back to headquarters, they report that Roy Farron's fallen out of the aircraft. And he's, re and he's reported killed in action, OK? So Farron's now in the field, officially dead, and he meets up with Mike Leese, they discuss the target, they are kindred spirits, obviously, from the word go, and Farron senses the target and the opportunity of a lifetime. Having said that, this is not a typical SAS target, quite the reverse. What the SAS... No, they're renowned for hit-and-run, shoot-and-scoot attacks. They attack targets of opportunity, trains, road convoys, hit them hard, quick, melt into the shadows. They're a small hit-and-run force. This is something completely different. And Farron knows that they will need uh, to be extraordinarily well-armed and well-equipped to be able to pull this off. And there's a problem. I mean, he wants everything up to the level of 75mm pack howitzers. That's a heavy gun which you can break down and carry on your back. That's what's called a pack howitzer. He wants everything like, like, up to that level dropped in, including jeeps as well for mobility. And the problem is, if he's going to get that kind of equipment dropped in, he will have to radio at Florence headquarters and ask. And, of course, he's dead. So when Farron gets on the airwaves and sends his massive shopping list of weaponry and material to Florence, there's consternation and not a small degree of anger. And headquarters says, we're going to court-martial you. And Farron says, yeah, I, I know that, but can you send me all this stuff that I've asked for? And, and he says, look, the point is you can't get me back. 
you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. There is no way for me to come back, so you might as well let me command my men. And they know there's nothing they can do. And so they say, OK, fair enough, we'll provide what you've asked for. And the really fascinating, why I hold these both men in such high regard, apart from many other things, is their inventiveness, their incredible um, initiative and intelligence, but, but also their ability to understand other nationalities and what would make them operate and fight. So Farron has asked for enough berets from the Transvaal Scottish Regiment for every single partisan uh, fighter they're going to take in on the operation. Why? Because the Transvaal Scottish happen to have a hackle, which is a feather in the beret, which just happens to be the colours of the Italian flag. OK? So he knows if he can get them to wear these things, they'll start to feel an identity. And he's asked for the Chiosera Vincera um, slogan to be embroidered on all the uniforms they're going to get dropped in. So they will start to feel they're part of something and so they can start to believe in themselves. They start getting the weaponry dropped in, they start to train the partisans, they start to build an esprit de corps. And again, in the mark of of the man's genius, Farron thinks there's one thing that's missing, and he goes to talk to Mike Lees about it, and he says, what will happen if we succeed? What will happen to all the local villagers? And obviously, the answer's obvious, you know, thousands of Italian villagers would get, um, you know, executed en masse. He says, we can't allow that to happen, because if nothing else, it will turn the, the partisans against us. Apart from that, it's wrong, it will turn the partisans against us. So, Farron sends a final request through to Florence. And what he asks for is he asks for a bagpiper to get dropped in. He says, find me a bagpiper. And there is a bagpiper. He's 18 years old. He's in Scotland. And he'd, he'd already won the nickname David the Mad Piper Kirkpatrick. He'd won that nickname piping ashore a number of commando raids across the Mediterranean and Asian. And bear in mind, when you pipe ashore a raid... You're the first man off the landing craft and you have no weapon. So he's a man of incredible bravery already. And the reason why he's in stores in Scotland there is because his commanding officers have said, you've done enough and you're very lucky to be alive. We want you to uh, take, take it easy for a while. He's bored out of his brain in stores. And when his commanding officer comes to him and says, uh, would you fancy a wee job, laddie? He says anything to get me out of the stores. And that's how David the Mad Piper Kirkpatrick volunteers for this mission. He's the last man to be parachuted in, and he parachutes in in full Highland regalia, including kilt. So you've got a, a midnight drop zone lit by flares, um, and you've got a, a guy dropping in in tartan kilt. And the Italian partisans think, why has Major Farron and, and Captain Lease asked for a woman? Parachuting. I mean, we've got all the staffettas and all our lovely Italian. And Farron realises he's got something of a, of a PR uh, disaster on his hands. So when, as soon as David the Mad Piper Kirkpatrick touches down, he says to him, pipe Highland Laddie. Highland Laddie is the marching regiment of all... Sorry, tune of all Highland regiments, or it was at the time. Hugely evocative song. And he plays it on the drop zone. And the Italians get up and sing and dance. And they suddenly realise what this is all about. For them, this is about morale and their esprit de corps and their willingness to go and fight. For Farron and Lease, it's about stamping an indelible British signature on the raid so thousands of, thousands of Italian villagers will not get killed. 
And it's the last night before the raid, so kind of like the Last Supper in Setio, their headquarters. And, 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 and Kirkpatrick is piping and they're having a bit of a feast before they set off. And um, Mike Lee starts to feel feverish. He caught malaria in Yugoslavia. Now, I don't know if, you, if any of you have ever had malaria, I have. And if you don't treat it properly, it becomes chronic and you'll have it for the rest of your life. Mike Lee is having an attack. By the end of the evening, he's very, very ill. And by the next morning, he's even more sick. And when he parachuted in, Lee's parachuted in with a chap called Faramond, Bert Faramond. He was a Dur Lancashire miner of trade, now with the, uh, a radio operator with the SOE. Faramond is not a man of very many words, and he's so, certainly no uh, romantic. He doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeve. But this morning, he's very different. He comes up to Mike Lee and says, Sir, please don't go. And Michael Lee says, well, What are you on about, Bert? And he says, Look, I've got a very bad feeling about this. I don't want you to go. And Michael Lee says, Come on, Bert, don't be ridiculous. I can make it, and, and waves him away. And they set off and they begin the march. They've been on the road for about 24 hours, marching towards the, uh, towards the enemy territory, and they're in the last village before you enter German-held territory. And they, held, they hold a parade. And Farron looks at Lise, who's feverish and really not... He's, Farron has also tried to stop Lise going, by the way. Lise has refused. He looks at Lise and thinks, well, let's hope he makes it. But he looks at his 100 men. So he's only got 100 raiders. He's got 20 SAS... 20 are being left behind to hold the valley because without holding the valley, you'll have nowhere to retreat to after the raid. He's got 30 Russians under Viktor Porogov, Slavic warriors. He's got the rest as Italian uh, partisans and some French foreign legionnaires and Spanish Civil War veterans. And he looks around at his 100 men and he thinks, this is amazing. They believe they can do this. How have we pulled this off? How have we pulled this off? They believe they can go and, uh, uh, and take down the... German 14th Army headquarters. And you have to bear in mind a couple of things here, OK? What they are about to go and do is not nice. Farron's orders are very clear. And Farron was a major, at least was a captain, so Farron was in the ultimate command. His orders are, you will not take any prisoners. Every senior German officer has to die. So he's asking for murder most brutal, OK? Not only that, if you are one of the SAS soldiers, or even Mike Lease, SOE, you're in uniform, if you're captured, you will probably ex be extended the protections of the Geneva Convention and you'll be a prisoner of war, OK? If you're an Italian partisan and you're captured, you will be tortured, you will then be executed, and all your family will be executed and your village will be destroyed. So to get those partisans to fight and to take on such a mission as this, imagine being able to inspire and convince those people, those local Italians, to do that. It's an incredible achievement. He looks around these hundreds of men and thinks, we can do this. And even as he's thinking that, a small figure weaves his way through the crowd, a young boy, and he's one of the runners uh, of the Italian resistance, and he puts into Farron's hand a, a piece of paper, and Farron opens it, and it's a message from headquarters. And the message says, you are to stand your mission down. And Farron reads it several times and can't believe it. And he looks at Mike Lease, and Lease is really almost not compass mentis. And he thinks, I can't ask Lease to share in this decision because he's really not up to it. It's my decision and I'm the senior commander. And he thinks, what will happen if we, if we cancel the mission? 
If we cancel the mission, we'll never get these 100 men to believe in themselves again like they do now. That's the first thing. Second thing is they will never believe in us anymore because they will think, you said we were going to go, go and do this, and then you changed your mind. And so Farron quietly puts the piece of paper in his pocket and the order in his mind was never received. He knows he's facing a court-martial. So what are they going to do? Court-martial him twice. So the mission is going ahead anyway. And what's happened is there's been a change of heart at Florence headquarters. They've radioed through to the Setio HQ, but Faramond, the Lancashire, ra Lancashire radio operator, said, well, I'm sorry, they've left, there's nothing I can do. And Florence has got more and more annoyed and Faramond has just kept repeating that line. And eventually what they've done is they've radioed through to a neighbouring uh, SOE agent who's got on his bike, cycled through the mountains, given the message to a runner and the runners eventually caught him up. So they set off and they have a, 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 a two-night trek through um, enemy territory. That in itself is an incredible achievement. Imagine getting 100 men through enemy territory at night without being detected. It is a feat of arms in itself. And when they reach the Casa del Lupo, Lupo the, the, the farm that overlooks the villas, they have got there without the Germans knowing they're in their midst. They lie up there until darkness. And then Farron has his last orders group before going in. And again, he repeats that, that difficult order. We are here to create mayhem and murder, and no one gets out alive. And then they descend from that last rise down into the, uh, in, onto the plains. It's midnight, it's very dark, and Farron is navigating by a process called pacing and bearing. And pacing and bearing, quite simply, you take a compass bearing on the shadow of a tree, for example, and if it's north, you know uh, the distance of your footfalls, you count 100 footfalls, if your footfall is a metre, you know you've walked 100 metres north, and that's how he was going to navigate this force right to the target. And threading his way through the German defences, he managed to get them there without being detected. And he gets them to the feature known as the, the Half Moon Wood, that's what they'd nicknamed it on the maps, a crescent-shaped piece of woodland just to the south of the two villas, at which point he divides his forces. He sends the Russians just south, to act as a blocking group to stop the reinforcements arriving. And then he has one force to attack the Villa Calvi under the command of a Lieutenant Harvey who has just turned 19 years old. So I'll just repeat that so we don't miss that. He's just turned 19 years old. OK? The other force is under the, to, to attack the Villa Rossi, where the generals are sleeping, is under the command of Mike Leese, but obviously he is very, very sick and it's under the command of a, a legendary SAS figure called Riccomini, who was a, a long-standing, a lieutenant and a long-standing veteran of operations. And basically, they're going to start the attack upon the firing of the heaviest weapon they have in their party, which is an American-made bazooka. So when the bazooka shell goes through the front door, big wooden doors of the Villa Calvi, that's when the whole attack will start. Um, Harvey leads his force to the lawn of the Villa Calvi, still undetected. And they level the bazooka at the door, and they fire the first round, and it's a dud. And this is the thing with the bazooka, great weapon, but the ammunition was appalling. They fire the second round, it's also a dud. But at that stage, Harvey hears the crunch of boots on the gravel drive. It's a German patrol. So he goes to the gatepost with his Bren gun, and as the patrol... Uh, comes, comes in, tries to come through the gate, he shoots them all dead. Long burst of Bren fire, 
and all hell breaks loose. So by the time Lise and Riccomini lead their men, their force, through the gates of the Villa Rossi, the defenders are alert and they're under fire. Now, Michael Lease, uh, despite the fact he's racked with malaria and he's just undertaken a massive trek through the mountains, leads the assault up the spiral staircase of the Villa Rossi. And in doing so, he's shot five times. Uh, and his, the commander of the Black Bats, his uh, special forces outfit, the local commander, is also very badly shot. And as Lease falls on the staircase, his commander falls on top of him. Riccomini and Guscott, two of the SS veterans, then try and storm the staircase to rescue them. They get gunned down and killed. And the most senior rank then left on that, on, on that raiding force decides they cannot actually make the upper story where all the senior officers are billeted. And so they have to um, uh, enact the second part of Farron's orders. And again, it's pretty... It's brutal and it's unpleasant, but this is war. He said, if you can't actually get up there and kill them all, you have to burn them to death. So they set fire to the ground floor. And as the flames start licking through the Villa Rossi and they're leaving and they're evacuating, they see a figure crawling towards the door. And it's Michael Lease, who they'd left for dead on the staircase. Okay? And Michael Lease says, leave me to be kept taken by the Germans because you can't... He's, you know, 17 stone. You, you cannot carry me back the way we've come. And they refuse... They go into the orchard, they find a ladder, they bring it back inside, they strap into the ladder, they carry him for three kilometres through the Italian countryside, which is now crawling with German troops, as you can imagine, enraged. The two villas are, are, are burning ruins by now. Um, and they take him to a farmhouse where they know that the old lady who runs the farm is, is, is a resistance sympathiser, and they hide him in a barn amongst some hay bales. Uh, and, of course, they don't believe he's going to survive, but they promise that they will send help, and then they leave. And so Lise is, Lise is left in there, yeah, surrounded by hay bales, with the Black Bats commander, who's also very badly injured. Um, and then Farron and his force muster at the Casa del Lupo and begin a trek back to, um, to the Seccio Valley. Um, and, and I'm going to leave the, them there, if I may... <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I promise you, I'm not doing that because I want you to... It, 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 and it asks me at the end and I'll tell I just want to talk about the other... Because we're probably running out of time, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, not long. OK, so, ask me at the end if you want to know... So, I want to go back to this picture. Um, so, um, this, this is the... The operation this picture deploy, uh, uh, shows is an operation called Colossus. And the reason why I just briefly want to talk about it is going to have a book coming out at the end of the month called SAS Shadow Warriors. And uh, Colossus is the mission which the first third of the book talks about. The reason why it's important, in my view, is that um, a year before the SAS were officially formed in a North African desert by David Sterling, the SAS had already been founded. And it had been founded by an amazing individual called Dudley Clark, who was a colonel, and two days after D-Day, Clark, who was brought up in South Africa, went to Churchill and said... Sorry, not after D-Day, after Dunkirk. Went to Churchill and said, look, we need to found a fighting force that will take the fight back to the Nazi enemy, which had just seized most of Western Europe, as quickly as possible to prove we have the will and the means to fight. 
He says, I want to find something like the Boer commandos who fought the British in the Boer War. And, of course, Churchill was in the Boer War. He was captured by the Boers. He knew and respected the Boer commanders immensely. And Churchill loved the idea. And he, so he charged Clark to find the commandos, OK? And he said, I want 10,000 commanders as quickly as possible, and you need to get a raid back across the Channel within the month. So Dunkirk on the 4th to 6th of June. Three weeks later, Dudley Clark gets the first raiders, 100 of them, the commandos, back across the Channel in RAF crash boats, which are boats for plucking airmen out of the sea. They're completely unsuited to raiding operations, and they carry out the first raid against uh, French, French, uh, French positions, but held by the Germans. An incredible achievement. And... All the commandos, all, all, all the special forces were volunteers, and they called them special service volunteers. That's what they were officially called. And then Churchill says, I want um, 5,000 airborne volunteers because he believed passionately in airborne operations, which, bear in mind, at this stage of the war, no-one but the Germans had done any airborne operations at all. And so, because Dudley Clark wanted to distinguish his airborne commandos from his seaborne commandos, they inserted the word air into the special service volunteers' name. So it became the special air service volunteers. Do you understand? That's where the name SAS came from. And that was in September 1940. And in September... Sorry, February 1941, 36 of those fledgling SAS boarded a fleet of eight Whitley bombers, which were these obsolete aircraft, obsolete already by this time in the war, which had had holes cut in the floor, which parachutists could drop through, and they flew from the UK to Malta. They forward-mounted from Malta, and then they flew into Italy to parachute onto the Trigino Aqueduct, because that aqueduct carried from the Apennine Mountains all the water required by three million Italian souls and the German soldiers based with them, who, who basically lived around the main ports, Taranto and the other ports, from which the Italians were sending all their troops to North, to North Africa, OK? So the mission, and it was conceived of by the SOE and signed off on personally by Churchill, was to send these 36 raiders in to blow up the Trigino aqueduct and basically kill three million Italians by depriving them of drinking water. And they were led by a chap called um, Major Tag Pritchard, an amazing individual, and... They parachuted in and they pulled the mission off against all imaginable odds. It was an extraordinary undertaking, the first ever airborne operation by, by British forces. The problem was, two days after the operation, they sent a reconnaissance flight from Malta. And from about 10,000 feet, they took a photograph of the aqueduct. And because they'd blown up the piers that held the aqueduct up and it dropped vertically from the air from 10,000 feet, it looked like it was still intact, do you understand? All the water was going down the valley, but the aqueduct looked intact. And so when the photo reconnaissance experts looked at the photographs, they concluded the mission had been a failure. And because they concluded the mission had been a failure, High Command concluded that Pritchard and his 35 men must have been taken captive. And so the submarine HMS Triumph, which was already en route to pick them up from the western Italian coastline, was recalled. And so Pritchard and his men had no submarine to rescue them after carrying out this incredible mission. And although months later several of these incredible individuals escaped and got back to Allied lines, it's, it, it, it's an old adage, very true, nothing succeeds like success but nothing fails like failure. 
The mission had been branded a failure. All the official reports said it was a failure, and so it was almost impossible to change that, 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 that narrative and, and, and acclaim it as the success it was. So, this pitch painting that, that, that Ben Wadhams did is of that raid. That's the midnight drop uh, on the Trigino Aqueduct, which you can see here. And the reason I want to show it to you is because, um, uniquely, uh, in my experience as an author, uh, we, <laughs> we used it in the most wonderful way, and I, I hope you'll agree it's a real... Um, so that's the cover of the new book, and that's the picture uh, on the back of the cover, uh, which I just think looks absolutely wonderful. Now, I'm sure I'm out of time. Um, Ten minutes questions. So I am out of time, very much out of time. You can ask me anything you want, and, and I'm happy to answer, but that's the story behind SAS Italian Job and a little bit behind SAS Shadow Raiders. Uh, 31st of November. October, I'm sorry. October, yeah. Um, hello, my name's Claire Derry. Um, my father was very involved at that time in Italy. He was uh, second in command at General Alexander's headquarters right. and was in military intelligence. So it's really fascinating to hear this because he didn't talk very much about that time. Mm. But his letters home revealed that he then went on to Yugoslavia mm -hmm. and he talks about these amazing SOE guys mm -hmm. that he's arranging to be dropped. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the stories he told was that um, on one particular occasion, there was a specific radio operator that was needed in a particular operation that was taking place. And um, but this guy was not prepared to. He was Italian. Mm -hmm. He was not prepared to parachute out of a plane. Mm -hmm. So my father arranged to steal a German plane, or mm -hmm. I think they had some German planes mm -hmm. they that did. they'd already they got. Did, yeah. And I think it was a stalker. A stalk, yes. Yeah, stalk. Yeah. And uh, he arranged also to get a uh, some Spitfires or some uh, some cover yeah. to be able to fly this plane in yeah. and land it. Yeah. Um, and in, they arranged the whole thing, and it was a major mission. And uh, what actually happened was, as they were, they took off with this guy on board, um, and a American plane, thinking it was a German plane, shot down the plane and killed this special agent that we were needing, dropping behind the lines. And the British squadron leader, who was offering cover in retaliation, chased the American plane and shot the American plane down. <laughs> and I just wondered if you'd come across that story at all in any of your research. Well, uh, no, but, but, but something so remarkably similar, this will really speak to you. So remember Mike Lees was left in the hay bales? Yeah. If I may, I'll just briefly tell you what happened, because it's exactly to your point. So uh, he's been there for a couple of days, and an Italian doctor's brought there by the resistance, and the Italian doctor says, if you don't get an operation on your leg, the nerve damage is so bad, it'll have to be amp amputated and you'll probably die anyway. So Lise knows he's got ten days to get out, and he thinks, well, the only way I could get to hospital is to give myself up to the Germans, and he's not going to do that. And the local resistance leader comes, and Lise tells him the situation, and the local resistance leader says, well, I have an idea. I'll be here tomorrow morning. And the next morning... Lise wakes up and sees a figure approaching him in a German army uniform and he grabs his pistol and it's the Italian resistance commander. And what he's done, bear in mind, there, there are 60 casualties or more from the two villas. So the roads are clogged with um, obviously German patrols searching for the raiders, but ambulances and hearses. And he's hijacked a German ambulance 
They've dressed themselves in the uniforms of the German medics, and he's got a uniform for Lise. And so they dress Lise as a wounded German soldier, bandage him up, put him in the back of the ambulance, they're dressed as, as German medics, and they drive him for 15 kilometres through all the checkpoints which had been set up to capture Mike Lease, waving and being ushered through. <laughs> they get him into the mountains, into Italian partisan territory, and then they take him to a tiny airstrip, not a lot bigger than this tent, OK? And there is a German Fischler Stork spotter aircraft, which has been captured by the Allies, and there's an Italian fighter ace called Furio Lori, highly decorated by the Germans and the Italians for shooting down Allied aircraft, had been shot down twice himself by the Allies, who the SOE had heard about, and because he was so good, they recruited him to fly clandestine missions for the SOE. And so they say to Florent Furio Lori, will you take that stork, fly across the Gothic line, land it on that tiny airstrip, and rescue Mike Leese? And he says, yes, of course. So he flies in in the stork with, with, a, with a fighter escort. On the sixth attempt, he manages to put the stork down on the airstrip. They load Mike Leese aboard, and that's how he's evacuated to hospital in Rome, and that's how they save his life. Amazing. True story. And I was saying, uh, I was speaking in London yesterday at the National Army Museum, and I was saying, if you wrote that as a fiction plot, <laughs> yeah. people would say, don't be silly, things like that don't happen in real life. But, you know, the number of stories in just this one book, which you couldn't make them up because people wouldn't believe them. Mm. You just want to know what's happened to uh, the other guy. Farron. Farron. Yeah. Great question. So, um, after the, the attack on the villas is highly successful, and to give you an indication of how successful it was, if you look at the signals records of the 14th Army headquarters, which I've done, they're in German, but I had a translator, you can see up until the night of the raid, lots of signals, 15 days of silence, and the signals start again. When they start, when they recommence, they're from a totally different location. The Germans were so shocked that, they, that we could strike so far behind their lines and an impregnable target, so they thought. They moved the whole headquarters. It took two weeks to do so. And in that period, the 14th Army had no command and control, and we uh, began our offensive and broke through, and days later, uh, Italy surrendered and the war in Italy was over. But Mike, uh, uh, Roy Farron was charged to take his commandos and ferment more havoc and chaos behind the enemy lines. So they did so in jeeps with howitzers, carrying out ambush missions until the Americans came through. And this is the answer to your question. As the American general comes through, he finds Roy Farron, of course, who's now legendary, and he says, uh, and he pins on his chest the colours for the American Medal of Honour. And in the field, he decorates him with the American Medal of Watch, very high-valor American medal. And, of course, because Farron's been decorated by the Americans, the British High Command find it impossible to to, um, to court-martial him. So he gets away with it without being punished. <laughs> uh, hi, Damon. It's Paul Hazard. Yeah. Um, having read three of your books this year, yeah. um, including Nazi Hunters While Surrounded by a Part of the Germans in, in Egypt, um, and just having read Operation Certain Death, um, you, you write about the, the Second World War and more modern-day forces. Mm. Um, what area do you prefer to write about? Well, they're very different. Um, I think the Second World War is remarkable because you, you know, even in special forces, you, so many of these individuals were not from a military background. 
had not been in the army beforehand. They were volunteers. Um, and, you know, they were fighting for... Well, it was, it was, a, fight, it was a battle for, for world survival. It was, a, it was a battle against Nazi supremacism the world over, against the Third Reich. So it was a very pure kind of combat and a very pure kind of conflict. That is the wonderful thing about writing Second World War history. Um, the tragedy of it is, of course, that there are so very few individuals left alive. And so it's very rare when you actually get to speak to the individuals who are there on the ground. I mean, you know, this book, and in fact all my World War II books, are read by a veteran of the SAS, the SBS and the LRDG, uh, a chap called Jack Mann, who's 97, who's had cataract operations on both his eyes and sits down and reads my manuscripts with a mag magnifying glass from cover to cover and gives me handwritten notes in the margins, to, you know, for authenticity. Um, but it's very hard to find any individuals left alive. And whenever I interview people like that, it's such, it's such a privilege. But, you know, the days are very, very n numbered as to how long they'll be with us still. When you write a more modern military story, of course you have access to far more people. And, you know, there are not the health problems that some of these World War II veterans have. So both have their advantages. I, I couldn't choose. Um, I do think it's really important if we can capture as many of these World War II veteran stories before they pass away. I think, you know, time is not on our side, so the more of this we can do, um, the, you know, the more valuable I think it is. So. I'm afraid we are now. Now, if you all please join me in thanking you.